Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 6, verse 15 to 23. Here's the word of God. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we are humble, Lord, that you chose to speak to us and awaken us, Lord, from our spiritual sleep. Father, as we come under your teaching, send your Spirit to make us obedient from the heart to it, that we may know you more and grow in our obedience to you. Give us wisdom this morning, Lord, and enrich our hearts. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So before I went to ministry full-time, I worked at a school teaching Bible, and I was teaching grades 7 and 8, and if you've ever tried teaching kids this age, you'd be fully convinced that humans are truly born into sin. And through this experience, I gained so much respect for the patience that's necessary to be a teacher. And having been a thoroughly sinful child, I became aware of the hell that I put my teachers through as I went to school. So if any of my teachers here are watching, I'm sorry. Because the hardest thing for a teacher to do, and it's, and it's not close, is getting your students to do what they're supposed to. And the only thing that works, at least in my experience, is threatening them. Because if there was no threat of possibly failing the class, or getting held back, or getting detention or something, most of them would never do what they're supposed to. Maybe there are other ways, I've not discovered them, and that's why I'm not called to be a teacher. But if I say to them, hey, you're going to pass this class no matter what, but I'm still going to give you assignments, and I'm still going to teach, and you know, you should still listen and do them because, you know, it's good for you, the ones who are unusually interested in the subject would be the only ones who would be doing them. For those who aren't interested, and for those uh, for whom the subject is challenging, no chance. Because when it comes to the really hard and uncomfortable things, it seems like the only confirmed cause of compliance is consequence. And often, we tend to view the requirements of the Christian life like assignments that my students get, right? 
extra work that we don't actually want to do and we will only do in order to avoid some sort of consequence. Right? Like we just need a pass from God. If not, it's going to be hell. But if we're aware of the doctrines of grace and we know that the consequence of our failures to do what we're supposed to do has been taken by Christ on the cross so that we no longer have to suffer them, what motivates us to actually obey God's commands? Because I don't know about you, but being a Christian is really hard, isn't it? And if you've been around Christians for significant periods of time, we would be well aware that the Bible forbids us of doing many things that we genuinely enjoy, right? And the world that we live in now can make it really inconvenient and at times profitable to be fully obedient to the Bible. So because we're no longer threatened by the consequence of punishment, there is a temptation to view our obedience to God like extra credit, right? Not actual requirements. Great if you do, but if you don't, well, no big deal. And because obedience is so hard, it can pretty easily seem like more trouble than it's worth. So the question is, right, in the absence of consequences, why would we try so hard to take our sin seriously? So today we'll be continuing in our series in the book of Romans, and the passage that we are meditating on today addresses exactly this question. And here, Paul gives us at least three reasons why we need to take our sin seriously if we've been saved by grace. Our three points. We need to take our sin seriously because, one, our choices reflect our master. Two, our master determines what we work on. And three, what we work on accomplishes different goals. Let me repeat that. We will take our sins seriously because our choices reflect our master, our master determines what we work on, and what we work on accomplishes different goals. Let's get into it. So if you have your Bibles out, your holy handphones out, I really encourage you to uh, look at it because we're going to be referring pretty closely to the passage. So in verse 15, right, notice how Paul poses a similar question here. Are we to sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? And in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul asks a similar question. But Paul's uh, objector there is asking if we can work the system by sinning, right? So up to this point in Romans, Paul's beautifully explained how we're so sinful and guilty and it's impossible for us to be saved from punishment from our good works. But because God loves us so much, he gives us grace that we may be saved through Jesus Christ. Then his objector tried to use this against Paul by saying, so if God gave us grace... Because we're so sinful, shouldn't we just keep on sinning to get more grace? And Paul's like, no way, because it's impossible for us to just continue sinning if we're saved. Because if we're saved, our sinful selves died with Christ and we're free from sin. Right? And Paul concludes by encouraging us not to follow the desires of our sinful bodies, but act like you've been really set free and then commit your bodies to unrighteousness. And so... The objector follows up by basically saying, but why, though? We're no longer threatened under law. Why would it even matter if we do that? Isn't it ultimately all the same because we're under grace? So Paul's answer here is by no means. And Paul explains his answer by using the metaphor of the slave-master relationship. And we know it's a metaphor because in verse 19 it says, I'm speaking in human terms. So notice here that Paul first tells us what he means by slave right? That you are a slave of someone to whom you're obedient, right? So what Paul's talking about here is not like forced labor or anything racist because it was a thing in Paul's time to actually 
willingly become someone's slave to secure some sort of livelihood and income. So what Paul's talking about here is voluntary subordination. Right? He says you present yourself as obedient. Right? Again, let's be clear. Paul's not talking about our level or value in the eyes of God. But Paul is communicating the principle that we are slaves to the one who we take orders from. And Paul says there are only two masters, sin or obedience. Right? Interesting, right? In verse 16, you would expect Paul there to say God instead of obedience. And he does say God later in verse 22. So it's not like he's not talking about God here. But Paul is doing something very intentional, right? He is teaching us what sin is in its essence. It's disobedience to God. So when we're not actively obeying God or even being ignorant to His will or refusing just to hear Him out, we're presenting ourselves as servants to the power of sin, willingly. You see, Paul does not see sin as only a category of action, but it is a power over us. And we are slaves to it because it has authority over us and ultimately we're powerless against it. And what the power of sin does is that it leads us not to trust and obey God, who first of all right, has authority and is owed obedience anyway because he's the creator, but also who is the one who is the source of life and all that is right and good. And because we reject God's authority over us, who do we have to trust instead? Well, ourselves, right? But because we're not God and we don't truly know what is right and good, selfishness and brokenness always somehow messes things up. So putting ourselves where God rightfully should be as the author and judge of what is good and right leads to what? Death and destruction. Whereas if you were obedient to God, we, that would have led to what? Righteousness, right? And this is totally consistent to what Paul's been teaching us from the start in the book of Romans. Right? If we recall Romans uh, 1, that because we did not honor God and give thanks to Him, because we worship creature instead of the Creator who is blessed forever, because we did not sit, see it fit to acknowledge God, what did it say happened to us? We became fools and futile in our thinking. What did God do? Three times it says in that chapter, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. To what? The lust of their hearts, our dishonorable passions, and a debased mind. It's not like God was the one who gave us this lust for heart and a debased mind. God was actually the one who was restraining us from being as sinful as possible, but we kept on pushing against the current, insisting to indulge ourselves. We stubbornly pursued the desires of our hearts. And what did God do? From time to time, He let us. Right? And the more He lets us, what does it say happens? We became more and more filled with unrighteousness, more evil, more envy, more hate, more foolish. And what does that all lead to? Death. So in Romans, right, it's teaching us that the thoughts of our minds and the hearts and the desires of our hearts are inevitably controlled by sin that is so deeply ingrained in us, such that if we reject God's authority and make ourselves our own masters, the only option is to trust in ourselves. It is to believe in the futile thoughts and to indulge our lustful hearts, being slaves to our sinful fallen passions that leads to death. Now, I suspect that some of you might protest, saying, Sam, that's a bit harsh. 
I'm not bad all the time. I do some pretty good things sometimes. And sure, I wouldn't deny that humans are capable of some pretty charitable and beneficial things. But I would challenge you right, to just try and not sin at all for, let's say, like 12 hours. Right? Don't have a single lustful thought. Don't have an envious um, agenda. Don't be hateful and treat everyone with exactly the same grace, dignity, honor, and charity as you would treat yourself. And I would dare to wager that none of us would last that long if we try. Right? But instead, we will discover how much more sin there, there is in us, actually, and how we can't help ourselves from wanting sin. Brothers and sisters, sin is the corrupting power that pollutes the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts and leads us to these self-destructive and ultimately suicidal tendencies. So if we're aware of what sin truly is, why would we make a conscious decision and present ourselves as obedient slaves to it? Unless we are still slaves to it. But thank God, friends. The Lord, out of His infinite grace, has bought us with a price that He paid in blood, the blood of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, such that there has been a transference of ownership, a change in management, and now sin no longer has dominion over us, but we are under grace. So how does this actually change us, right? So point two, our masters determine how we are led. So in verse 17, tells us that we have been truly liberated from our slavery to sin. We will become obedient from the heart to this form of teaching. That somehow, we who once loved sinning, who was uncomfortable with anything having to do with God, at some point suddenly genuinely cares about what God thinks and wants. And for some reason, we are convinced that the words of this ancient book that some people in the Middle East wrote 2,000 years ago are the words of the Almighty God Himself. And as we read this book and sat under its teaching, our hearts did not harden or resist what it was trying to say, but it softened. And we no longer stand over it as if we have the authority to judge whether or not what it's saying is valid to us or if it's actually trustworthy, but we became humbled. We got ears to hear, and we realized that we're the ones who are messed up that we're not able to do what it says. Yet even then, our hearts not become discouraged, but there remains a desire to be obedient to its teaching. You see, when God became our master and not sin, there's this inexplicable, irrational, supernatural transformation of the heart where our posture is changed from one of rebellion to one of obedience. Right? And thanks be to God for that. Because it is only because of the miraculous work of God and His immense love for us that we changed. How can we love God? Why would we when sin is so pleasurable and easy? If not, God Himself has miraculously changed us. He opened our spiritual eyes so that we can see His beauty and His goodness such that we can't help falling in love with Him. We were blind, but now we see. Friends, we did not convince ourselves to love God. We did not will ourselves to do it. He changed us supernaturally. Then we see in verse 18, right, Paul goes on to relate this posture of obedience that God had given us to the fact that we've been liberated from sin. And what is immediately noticeable, right, 
is that what happens after this freedom is not that we become our own masters, but we change masters. Right? We are now slaves of righteousness. So the reason why we became obedient from the heart is because we love our new master, right? the righteousness of God himself. And we will hate our sin, our old master. As our Lord says that we cannot serve two masters. We will hate one and love the other. In other words, liberty from sin does not mean license to sin. Let me say that again. Liberty from sin does not mean license to sin. Because what Paul teaches us is that this posture of obedience is not the requirement from being free from sin, you see. But it is a consequence of this freedom. Because this posture of obedience is a function of, being, of having a different purpose that God has given us. Because sin is no longer our master and sin no longer has dominion over us, our deepest desire, who we choose to present ourselves as obedient to, is no longer our sinful passions, but God. And since we have a new master, we have a new job description, right? The pursuit of righteousness. We move from the pursuit of our own happiness to the pursuit of righteousness. And as we learn in verse 16, that the path, of ri- the path to righteousness is obedience. See, when we serve sin, we naturally had sinful pursuits and, and sinful goals. Before Christ, we might have been driven by worldly and selfish ambition. Our purpose might have been to accumulate worldly treasures for ourselves to attain the prestige and respect of men. We might have looked forward to losing ourselves in our sin, or we might have been preoccupied with satisfying our sins. But somehow, we began to lose interest in these things. And these things ceased to satisfy us the way it used to. And even in our moments of weakness where we became curious or nostalgic and we indulge ourselves in our old sinful habits, we find that we don't enjoy them nearly as much anymore because the love we have for our sins have been replaced by a greater and more conquering love, the love for our new master, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because suddenly, as the famous hymn says, the things of earth seem strangely dim in the light of his glorious face. So now our purpose is to please our new master. And, and what would this look like? And verse 19 is exactly what, what explains this, right? So because we're now working under a new master, the new master has completely different ideas about what it is he wants from his servants. So this new job is not going to be like the old job at all. In verse 19, Paul gives us a contrast of what the difference to work as slaves of sin compared to being slaves of righteousness practically looks like. So we see in verse 19, it's actually the restatement of a command that we saw in verse 12 and 13 of this chapter. Right? And just like those verses, members here literally refer to the members of our physical bodies, right? or more generally, our physical existence in the world. And while we are slaves to sin still, we use these members of our body to serve impurity and lawlessness. Impurity it refers to this inward moral corruption that causes us to want sin and enjoy it, the desires and thoughts that lead us away from God and encourages us to serve our own masters. Lawlessness, on the other hand, is both the act of disobedience in God and our contempt and disregard towards God's commands. It is the actions that we take against God and it's also the state of hatred and resentment towards God's law. So, when God purchased us and made us His, we, oh, before God purchased us and, and made us His, rather, 
we wholeheartedly invested in our sins. And we had no regard for what God wants. And we love our sins so much that we would sacrifice our time, our mental space, our money, our efforts, our relationship to indulge ourselves in it. And we would find, as we invest in our sins, the more, like we find more opportunity to sin. And the more frequent our sins become and the more varied they are in order for us to be satisfied, the more we sin, the harder our hearts get to sin as well. And the more frightening and costly it is to repent. You see, lawlessness begets lawlessness, as the verse says. So it might start with, with a glance or entertaining a lustful thought. It eventually might lead to committing adultery, supporting a mistress, and an endless web of lies to cover it up. Because sin, it's a trap that draws us deeper and deeper. And the more we serve our sins, the more comfortable we are with it, and the more part of us they become. And we don't know the kind of person that we'll end up being because of it. And friends, in light of recent events, we know that this happens to even the best of us. But if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, there is a change in management. And our new boss has completely different ideas, completely different goals. And what he wants us to work on is our righteousness. So then we are called to direct all of our resources to this project, whereby we at one point wholeheartedly invest in sin, but now we're selling all our shares in sin and going all in on righteousness. Right? Interesting, right, how in the entirety of Romans 6, Paul only gives us one command, but he gives it twice, to commit our members, our physical bodies, unto righteousness, teaching us that on the one hand, there's a spiritual reality that we are now alive in Christ and are freed from sin, and these things happen independently from us, right? God did it all for us, but on the other hand, there must still be an act of the will that commits to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life as one who is obedient to God, pursuing righteousness with all we got. Because this, this results in our sanctification. See, Paul is illuminating us here of the complexity of our salvation. That on the one hand, our justification, our reconciliation with God, and our freedom from the consequences of sin, and our legally being declared righteous is monergistic. Right? God does it all for us. We contributed nothing to it. But on the hand, sanctification, our growth in the righteousness of Christ, our dying to sin, becoming holy, is synergistic. A cooperative effort between us and God. And what Paul has been really explicitly hammering on here in the book of Romans is that these two are inseparable. In other words, if we've been declared righteous, that necessarily means we will also live righteously. Meaning at the same time, as we're saved, there's going to be a radical change of heart whereby we will adopt this posture of obedience to God's law because our life purpose will be righteousness and this will show in our patterns of behavior that submits to righteousness. And as we follow this renewed pattern, we'll be, uh, have less lawlessness, but we'll grow in holiness. And that is sanctification. Now, I realize that on the one hand, this can be very comforting for some of us because we do sense a desire in us to serve our new masters, and this only comes from the Lord. And we may have some evidence that we're slowly being freed from our sin that we have, you know, in Christ. On the other hand, this can also make us quite anxious 
Because if we take an honest look at our lives, we're well aware of the burning desire to sin within us. And it may be that we have failed to serve our new master so frequently and that we are still struggling mightily with our sin, such that we even come to doubt if we've been actually freed from sin. So, how can we know if we've been truly freed from sin and is now on this path to sanctification? Because, point three, our changed patterns of behavior, what we work on, will have different results. Verse 20. Paul begins his explanation of what will become after going through this transformation by first stating a fact about how we were when we were still enslaved by sin. We were free in regards to righteousness. Right? This does not mean we were free from the expectation of having to be righteous. Rather, it means that when we were slaves to sin, we were not in, under the control of righteousness. There is no internal compulsion or inclination towards righteousness and to please God. Because the only impulse we have is to satisfy our own desires and fulfill our purposes, which, as we've discussed before, is always tainted by sinfulness. So even, the, even when it looks like we're pursuing righteousness, it's either burdensome to us or self-serving. It's the opposite of what we talked about in verse 17. That we're not obedient from the heart, right? There needs to be something in it for us to obey. But internally, if we were honest with ourselves, it was about us all along. And this kind of obedience will eventually feel totally exhausting. And when we don't get what we seek from our obedience, from trying to obey, our efforts to obey will not seem like it's worth it. We might even regret that we tried so hard when we could have spent our time and energy doing something that we would actually enjoy. But then in verse 21, right, Paul tells us what happens when the former slave of sin is freed to serve God. If we are truly on this path of sanctification, that there is shame about the sin that we once loved. This is part of the heart change that we have, right, which gives a desire to actively serve God. There is a deep guilt and shame associated from our sins and the benefits that we get from our sins, right? This does not mean sin stopped being enjoyable, but we're uncomfortable with ourselves for enjoying these things. And there is deep regret and shame if we do fall into sin, right? There is this healthy hatred for sinfulness that leads to repentance. So a biblical example of this is Zacchaeus, right, the tax collector whose job is all about working with an oppressive empire and extorting money from his own people. Right? He was scum and everybody knew it. But Jesus wanted to stay in his home. How did Zacchaeus respond? He gave half of his wealth to the poor and paid back four times the money he cheated people. In the story, Jesus never told Zacchaeus to do this. But because Jesus called him by name, and chose to stay in his house. Right? At the same time, Zacchaeus received the Lord with joy and became ashamed of our wealth. Right? He's like, really, me? A sinner? And so he couldn't go on the way he was. And so Zacchaeus was no longer free with regards to righteousness, you see. But he welcomed righteousness into his home. Because ultimately, as mentioned earlier in the passage, that the fruit, that the resulting, um, the resulting patterns of thoughts and behaviors of serving sin is ultimately 
death. Yes, on the one hand, it does refer to physical death, and if the sin is bad enough, it could lead directly to that, but ultimately, there will be physical death for sin. But the true and ultimate and final death is really being separated from God, the source of life and joy Himself. It ultimately talks about an eternal death where we're forever separated from God. And this separation, friends, is not only experienced in the future. We can begin to experience this separation now. The more we indulge ourselves in our sin, the more emotionally numb we become to it. We become dead inside. The deeper we are into our sins, the more will we experience regret, hopelessness, broken relationships, depression, anxiety, loneliness. All of this is an experience of a spiritual death that we experience before our physical death. Things that prevent us from feeling alive and make life really feel like it's not worth living. Experiencing hell on earth. But thank the Lord. Because now, in Jesus Christ, we are not doomed to this. Because we have a new master. And obedience to a new master will bear different fruit. A change in our works that will lead to sanctification. And the end or the telos, what is obedience in Greek, right? Meaning the perfection or completion is eternal life. We've been given a new heart, a new posture of obedience, a new purpose that generates new patterns of behavior, and this new life that we're able to live takes us in a different direction. Because these new patterns of behavior will purge the sinfulness from within us that we're so used to, and it causes us to be sanctified and move towards the direction of holiness. Now, we'll not Gonna, we're not going to get there in this life, right? We won't be 100% holy until we get to heaven because holiness is actually an incredibly long way away from us, from where we are. Because when we're on our own, right, we were lost and we were in the dark, quickly going nowhere and eventually off a cliff. But now we're letting God drive and we're finally going in the right direction. And when we arrive, where will we be? Eternal life. While we only will have enjoyment of this in heaven, this is not something that we only get in the future. Because as John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Friends, eternal life does not only mean living forever. Eternal life is being able to know God and it is impossible to perfectly do that until, until we'll f- we're fully rid of sin, which won't happen until the new creation, when we're going to see him face to face. But even in this life, friends, we can experience it. Eternal life does not start after you finish your physical life, but it starts when you die to sin and is born again in Jesus Christ. Our new life, our eternal life starts from the moment We met Christ from the second we confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our hearts that he was raised from the grave. It was then that our lives turned around. And from then until we see him face to face in glory, our life is one of a deepening relationship with him. The more we devote ourselves to him, the more we grow in holiness, the more will we understand his heart, the more will we be sensitive to him, the more we'll truly feel alive. So friends, in verse 23, 
Paul restates, in summary, the answer to the question that's posted in verse 15. Why do we stop sinning, even though we're free from the penalty of sin and are under grace? Simply put, because sinning, after knowing what sin does to us, is suicidal. But God has freely given us eternal life in Jesus Christ because this is something that we can never earn and we do not deserve, but God gives it to us by giving us Jesus' life on the cross to take what he earned on himself so that we don't have to take it. And Jesus bought our freedom with his life so that we can have his righteous life. And this life, friends, is a life one as a son who only does what he sees the Father doing a life that is dead to sin and will be raised unto glory. So brothers and sisters, if you notice that you're still trapped in your sins and though you're still breathing, you feel like you're dying, receive this gift. Confess Jesus as Lord over your life. Turn from the sins that you're ashamed of and take on this posture of obedience and live for the purpose of righteousness. And invest wholeheartedly in your sanctification. In that process, you will see your life moving towards the direction of holiness. And through that process, you will grow closer to Christ who is with you every step of the way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we confess, Lord, that our passion for sin rages. And at times, we fall to it and at times you forget that you are our master. Lord, give us shame for our sin, that we may not fall back to it, knowing what it does to us, Lord, but show us your beauty, for we want to see your face, that we may be moved to be more like you, to be molded in your image, so that we can see you in glory, face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.